Great to see you. I'm Rich. I'm one of the members of the church here, and it's my privilege today to share with you from the Bible, uh, from Psalm 130 in our series on, uh, what is it, Psalms of Ascent. Um, there are a chunk of Psalms uh, in the book of Psalms. Uh, this afternoon, however, we're going to talk from this Psalm, but we're going to talk about guilt. What a joy um, that I'm sure you will join me in. Uh, you know, we all, yeah, have, we all kind of know a bit about it, don't we? So we're going to talk about guilt this afternoon. And as I wrote this talk, some of it anyway, not all of it, as I wrote it, I was waiting to hear whether or not I was guilty or innocent. Oh, get Poirot out. Um, <laughs> so the idea this week, is there a clicker? No idea. Push on one slide. Thank you. That's fine. You have it. There we go. Always good to catch when you can be seen. Um, yeah, the idea of living guilt-free this week has actually been something on my mind uh, because I had to travel to Bradford. What a you know, lovely place. Uh, <laughs> to go to the magistrate's court because our old car, our red one, some of you might have seen it, uh, was caught speeding. There had been previously been some confusion with the DVLA about paperwork. Um, I didn't own the car, uh, but I had the papers to prove it. But what did the magistrate say? I'll come to that later. Keep listening. So, which for you is worse? Thinking about guilt. One, being guilty. Two, feeling guilty. Or three, being worried that you might get caught. For me, I'm a, a bit of a pragmatist. I'm kind of worried about the natural actual outworkings of things. So for me, number three is probably the biggest one, worried that I might get caught. Um, and this, I can tell you, has caused me some problems that if I just confessed to my wrong in the first place, uh, it would have been much easier, most frustratingly, within our marriage. Uh, so my first piece of advice to you is face up to your wrongs in your relationships and confess them to one another. It's not directly in the passage, but it's, it's just a good piece of uh, advice for life. A friend of mine said to me, before uh, we got married, he said, here's a piece of advice for you. He said, when you've got something to confess, do it in public so that she can't go mad at you. And his wife was there and she said, I hate it when he does that. <laughs> so uh, take that as you will. Guilt's an interesting one, isn't it? We all relate to it really differently. Some people, no matter how much you might comfort them or encourage them or speak the gospel into their life, some people find it really hard not to feel guilty a lot of the time. It might be guilt that you didn't keep up with your diet. You know, you had three bits of lettuce instead of two. It might be guilt that you were late to a meeting. Or it might be you feel guilty because other people you think have expectations you can't meet up to. Maybe you feel weary because you feel so guilty. Is that you? It's not really me. But if that's you, I want you to know that this psalm has some good news for you. Other people relate to guilt in a wholly different way. Uh, even if they've made mistakes, whether they're big or small, they go on about their lives as if nothing really has happened. They don't seem to struggle under an overwhelming sense of oppressive guilt. Of the two options, I'm a bit more on this side than that side. Um, not entirely, I'm not a psychopath, but I'm a bit more on this side. But the thing is, if this is you as well, 
this psalm has something to say for you too. And it's encouraging. So, whichever side you most associate with doesn't really matter. And that's not because I want you to feel overburdened by guilt on one hand, or like never feeling guilty. Because those two positions deal with whether or not we feel guilty. And that's not necessarily the same as being guilty. I might feel guilty, but I may not be guilty. Don't misunderstand me, however. Feelings are really important, and God gives us those, and they're, they're really a special gift to us. However, the guilt that the psalmist is concerned with is what a criminologist might call, I, I read this in a book, uh, I can read, uh, what a criminologist might call clinical guilt, in inverted commas, which is, let me check, well, what's the difference, I hear you ask, that's what it says in my notes. I was meant to wait then for you to say, what's the difference? Thank you, Sam. Uh, let's try that again. What's the difference, I hear you ask? What's the difference? Hopefully that'll show up on the recording and get edited out better than that. Um, well, whether we feel guilty or not is subjective. Whether we are guilty isn't. So we might feel more guilty if we've had a bad night's sleep and we wake up and things are playing on our minds. We may not feel as guilty if our favourite sports team has won an important match and it takes our mind off it. Clinical guilt is the objective reality of guilt. That is, if you feel guilty or not, you either are or are not guilty. It doesn't change if you've slept badly or your favourite sports team's won. But this psalmist, right in this psalm, knows that before God, he is guilty objectively. If you're visiting today, or you've got very little experience of church in general, um, you may think that the Bible is basically a big book um, of do's and don'ts. And you may think it's a big book so that vicars and priests and religious professionals can bash you about the head with it when you do do a don't and don't do a do. <laughs> but you couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible really is God's love story with his people. It's a story of God chasing after his people who time and time again reject him and hurt him. Yet God always makes a way for them to come back to him. And our passage today comes right from the middle from the book of the Psalms. So what we're going to do is we're going to read it again, we're going to dice it up piece by piece and eat them as we go. So let's read it once more, it's only short and we'll carry on. The Psalmist says, a song of ascents, out of the depths I cry to you Lord, Lord hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you Lord kept a record of sins, Lord who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Should have pressed that one before. There are uh, kind of three things we're going to look at today. We've done the introduction already, so there are three more. Uh, this is the longer one of the three, just to give you some hope. By the time we get to the end of it, we'll be halfway through. Um, so as we look at this passage, the first couple of verses, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. 
as we look at this this uh, psalm, I just want to let you know that I'm very grateful to a guy called Josh Moody. Never met him, but he's written a really helpful book on the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, without his help and the help of some other books that I was able to read, I would have been coming to this psalm in completely the wrong way. I thought that these first couple of verses, if you skim over them again, sounded like a lost soul in the desert, screaming from despair to a God who, who couldn't hear his cries and left him unanswered. And that's not the case. I struggled with that for a while because I didn't think it tied in with the, the rest of the story of the Bible, which is probably a good indicator that I was on the wrong track. But I was there for a little while. We can see that in these two verses, the writer is crying out personally to God. He says, I cry, my voice, my cry. And these are not the words of somebody who's committed a, a speeding offence or a parking violation or who's passed the wine the wrong way at a a posh do. These are the cries of somebody who knows that they're guilty. Somebody who's broken the law, but also they've offended the lawgiver. Our queen represents our nation and our law. I was told this week to nod to the crown as I went into the courtroom. There's a crown that sits above the magistrate's head. Uh, they're not wearing it, it's on the wall. Um, and I was told to nod to it because it's like the queen's country, it's the queen's court, it's the queen's law, all that stuff. So, as this psalmist is crying, he's crying as if he's somebody who had stepped on a corgi and punched the queen in the face. He's somebody who's crying, oh no, that's it. Everything is broken. I am 100% guilty. And I've offended the person who is in charge of the law. That's the kind of grief this uh, psalmist is going for. And this psalmist like David, who wrote Psalm 51, and we did that kind of responsive prayer earlier, knows that his sin, even if it was between him and another person primarily, was a sin against God himself. David says, against you, you only, have I sinned. And as Ben mentioned, David had just committed adultery, and he'd had the woman's wife murdered. Yet his sin was primarily against God. Now, if I were to say to you, the 1966 World Cup final, for some of you, you would know who was playing. Some of you would know the score. Some of you would know who's won. Some of you might even know that Gottfried Dienst was the referee. Looked it up on Wikipedia. I have no interest. <laughs> or, if I were to say to you, Mr. Darcy, some of you might be able to replay the lines of the story in your mind. And it'd bring back all sorts of uh, memories. Well, for this psalmist, whoever he was, we don't know. Uh, he was a Jewish man, and he was steeped in Jewish history. And for the Jewish people, there are moments like that in these verses. Moments that needed pointing out to me, because I'm not Jewish, steeped in Jewish history. But moments that the briefest reference to brought straight to mind. Where he says, out of the depths. Doesn't sound like a good place to be, does it? In some ways it isn't. But I think that that's a reference back in Jewish history to a time when, when God rescued his people from the depths of a great sea. This then isn't necessarily the voice of a struggling, drowning man, but the confident cry of one of God's children saying, you saved from the depths before, you can do it again, and I believe it. This is the kind of God that you are. In Jewish history, you may know that, that one of those seas was the Red Sea, uh, where God saved his people from slavery on one side 
to freedom on the other. He brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground under the leadership of Moses. The forces of slavery, Egypt, chased them, but God gave them safe passage through the water, the depth to freedom. It's a great like Sunday school story, isn't it? You know, God saved his people through the sea, off they went, jolly marching along. But I was thinking, actually, had I been among God's people that day, would I have had enough faith to step foot on the dry ground and say, I trust that God will hold that water there and there, all this way across there. I'm not sure I would. It'd be terrifying seeing all that water there, that if he'd let it go, <laughs> oh, that was a good effect, uh, would have <laughs> destroyed me. When they reached the bank on the other side, they still had a long way to go. And it's the same with us. If we've been saved by God, we still have a long way to go, even if our guilt is dealt with. But more on that later. The second verse as well, wherever it's gone, harbors one of these references to Jewish history. Uh, when he says, let your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. That harks back to the commissioning prayer of uh, Solomon's great temple, where it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will hear, heal their land. It's in 2 Chronicles 6. Uh, look it up this evening if you've got nothing else to do. It's another cry from within his soul, saying, you promised this, and I trust you. Hear me again. It's not somebody shouting at the top of their voice to a deaf and impotent God. Guilt for this psalmist, and for us, is the same. It's being people who have sinned. David, Israel's greatest king, was a sinner and he knew it. This psalmist is a sinner and he knew it. Moses, who led the people through the water, was a sinner and he knew it. I'm a sinner and I know it. And you are a sinner, whether you know it or not. Sin is the natural heart condition of humankind. <laughs> uh, the idea basically that we stick two fingers up at God and say, there is no way on God's green earth I am letting you tell me what to do sin is me saying I will rule as king of my life not you God or it might be me saying I'm going to let my spouse or my children or my job or my relationship status or my sexual orientation rule my life and you can have nothing to do with it God certain actions are sinful no doubt about it but sin is much more about the motive than the action the only person who wasn't a sinner was Jesus. The rest of us are in the same boat, and that boat has a leak. Our sin and our guilt is going to kill us. But wait. Let's turn back to Psalm 130 and read the next verse. And I'll click on so we're up to speed. There we go. He says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? That's just what I was saying. We're all guilty. We're all not able to stand blameless before God. The psalmist is agreeing with me implicitly, or maybe I'm ex agreeing with him explicitly. If God kept a register of all of our sins, of all the sins in the world, our names would be in it, and next to it will be loads of entries of things that, that we've done wrong and that I've done wrong. We don't even measure up, if we're honest, to our own standards. We sometimes feel ashamed of things that we've done let alone if we try to measure ourselves up to God's perfect standard. But let's read the next verse. So he says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, so that we can, 
with reverence serve you. Good news. But with you, there is forgiveness. It's amazing, isn't it? We're not necessarily lost for all eternity. Why? Because with God, there is forgiveness. Now, this forgiveness that God offers is free, but it isn't cheap. It requires something in return. Not to earn it in the first place, but to appropriately respond to the gift of forgiveness if we receive it. To kind of show that we've understood properly the forgiveness on offer. Where it says, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. If I receive forgiveness from God, however that works, it's not so that God doesn't have to deal with me ever again and he can just send me on my way. It's so that we can be redeemed. That is, have our, our hearts transplanted. Remember, sin is a, a fatal heart condition that we're all suffering from. Receiving forgiveness from God is allowing God to replace our sinful heart that's broken and loves idols with a heart that loves good and it loves God. These hearts have desires that no longer damage us or others, but have a desire for God that make us truly human. They make us able to start living in a way that enables us to be God-honoring for his glory and for our good. Worshipping God is not dehumanizing, but worshipping anything but God begins to enslave us. Whereas worshipping God enables us to have lives that are more like Jesus. Being more generous, being more self-giving, honest, open, free. Because that's what God's like. You become like what you worship. So pick wisely. Why does God deserve service or worship? Just because he forgives? Is that not a bit much? Well, let's briefly unpack the workings of forgiveness and see. If I were to wrong you in some way, and this example could happen. If I asked to borrow £10 off you, promising to pay it back the next day, and when you come to me the next day and ask for the £10, I say, you never lent me £10, and I turn my back on you, fold my arms and huff. What are your options? I've got three. I'll give you these. See what you think. See which one you would do as well, but don't put your hand up. Uh, unless it's the last one, then I'll ask for a tenner later. Um, number one, you choose not to forgive. Okay, We're no longer friends, and we never will be again. Break ties. You know, maybe that's a bit much for a tenner, but maybe that tenner was very important. Number two, you choose not to forgive unless I you know, go find the money repay the debt and apologize or number three you choose to forgive and absorb the debt yourself i then have to recognize my need for forgiveness however turn back around and come and see you and, and get hold of that forgiveness there are probably more options than that but for illustrative purposes that'll do our problem and our guilt is great the Jewish history, known to the psalmist as he's writing this, is one of forgiveness, but it's through the shedding of blood. Uh, in the time of the psalmist, the Old Testament, I was actually thinking of bringing one of Meg's toys with me to try and demonstrate this, but I thought if I got it wrong, I'd be in big trouble. Uh, 
they would take animals to the temple and to priests to offer them uh, as sacrifices. And they would offer them, the priest would offer it on your behalf to God. And the animal was killed. And as it was killed, it signified the sword of God's judgment falling. But not on you, on the animal. The reason I didn't bring a toy was because I was thinking I could bring a toy and a knife, but if I chop the head off, then... Oh. But yeah, so as the, the, the animal is killed, it signified the sword of God's judgment falling, not on you, but on the animal. The animal that was standing in your place. Does that make sense? Good. You were guilty. Blood must be shed. A life must be taken to pay for it. And the animal is the stand-in for you. Sometimes the Old Testament temple was more like a butcher's than it was a church. And in this, people were saying, we know we're guilty and this is how we deal with our guilt. God made a way for them to have their guilt covered, but they had to keep on doing it. It was a kind of constant part of Old Testament life. Ritual sacrifices of blood to cover sins. And that was the norm for them. But they pointed forward to a better and truer, fuller, more glorious, once and forever sacrifice we have the luxury in history of looking back at this psalm. And as we do, we look back at this psalm through the cross. It's how we should look back at all the Old Testament. So the psalmist is writing looking forward, thinking of a better sacrifice. We know what that is. And we look back to this psalm through that better sacrifice, which is at the cross. Our better sacrifice is Jesus. God saw our mess, he saw our broken heart condition from heaven and he stepped into human flesh and blood and limitations and weakness so that he could stand before God, to stand in a place that we couldn't. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? In history, no one. And then history speaks, hang on a minute, who's this fella? This man hasn't sinned. He's not been guilty. He's the God-man. He's willingly had God as his king for his whole life, from eternity past. This is the better sacrifice. The one that will replace the old system with a better one. One where we don't have to keep offering sacrifices. But one that is, is given to pay for the guilt of the many. A sacrifice that, that needs no repeats. So at the cross, the sword of God's judgment fell again. Not on the guilty, but on the innocent. Not on an animal this time, but a man. But not just a man, the God-man. On Jesus, on the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, absorbed the debt of our sin against God. What it cost him in that moment was his life and his relationship with God the Father. Jesus hangs murdered on the cross as a sacrifice so that we don't need to. We can accept our need for forgiveness. We can turn back to Jesus and ask him to forgive us, our rejection of God as our king, and ask that he would bear the debt of our sins on the cross. If we come to God and ask that, he's never going to say no. But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. 
Our response to forgiveness from God should be obvious, I hope, from that verse. It's just we say thank you and we have nothing more to do with him. No, that'd be stupid. We live out our lives as an act of worship to God. Jesus was a sacrifice that was killed so that I can live. Therefore, I should live out my life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Why? Purely because Jesus is amazing and he is worth it. Last point. Verses five through eight. Do you want to read those with me? If I can find them. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The psalmist is not crying out, wondering if God has saved him or if he can save him. But he knows God's forgiveness. It's like for the, the, as God's people crossed over the Red Sea and they reached the other side, they had a long journey ahead of them to the promised land. God still had a lot of work he wanted to do with them. If we know God's forgiveness, he still has a lot of work to do with us. This psalmist knew God's forgiveness, but he knew God still had a lot of work to do with him. We are not yet what we will be, but one day we will be what we will be, but only when Jesus comes again. So as we've looked at this psalm, hopefully we've seen that we are guilty before God. And we have seen that there is forgiveness with God. So where does the psalmist take us to finish? He, he does the work of application of the passage for us. He takes those two previous truths and tells us what to do because of them, which is very kind of him. Saves me a job. So what's his instruction for us? You might be able to guess from the slide. Uh, and it's that we should hope. We should live lives of hopefulness which isn't wishful thinking or hoping against all the odds but being able to say that I am confident in God's promises to me in his word in that I will hope God's goodness, God's surety God's steadfastness his never giving up gives me a reason to put my hope in him and in him alone but hoping involves waiting doesn't it we don't hope for stuff that we've already got So what is it that we're hoping for from this psalm? We're waiting with a certain hope for the redemption of Israel. The covenant, unbreakable promise that God will return and redeem the world fully. It began back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned and rejected God. God promised one day to come back and destroy evil. But this psalmist stresses how much we are to wait, doesn't he? That he repeats one line. More than watchmen for the morning, we should wait. It says there, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. This was in the days before coffee and paste was invented. That was a control C, control V, um, for those of you who are interested. So that's our first application. We should be people who hope. If we're part of God's family, bought in by the, and redeemed through the blood of Jesus on the cross, who are hoping confidently in God's promises for the future, not necessarily the present, as Jai mentioned last week. Christians may suffer in life just like Jesus did. 
but in eternity we will perfectly share in God's goodness and glory. So we wait with hope. That's number one. Secondly, what are we to do? The psalmist splits this, these couple of verses in two. The first, uh, the, the psalmist speaks to himself. He says, I wait for the Lord. Uh, in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. So he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquity. What he's doing is the psalmist has done the first bit. He's done the hoping bit. And that excitement bubbles over inside him. It's as though he's speaking to his own soul with the first bit to the point where he cannot contain it any longer. And he doesn't want to. So he starts to shout to Israel. You know, God's love is steadfast. He's got loads of redemption. He will save you all. So our second application from this psalm is let the love of God in Christ bubble over in your heart and life to share it with others. God's love and redemption are not just enough or adequate or nice, but they're abundant and bountiful and overflowing and exuberant. They're a bit a lot, as we would say in our house. When Meg's trying to describe something, it's a bit, or it's a bit a lot. So this is a bit a lot. So go and take it and share it with your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbours and everyone so that they may know God and share in that hope and joy too. So I know what you're all thinking. What did the magistrate say? Well, it wasn't dramatic. I wasn't even in the courtroom two minutes. I gave my name my address, my date of birth, and my nationality. Then the prosecutor said, we wish to withdraw the complaint, and the magistrate said you can go free. And that was it. I wasn't even in two minutes. I'd been there, I'd left the house at 10, got back after six, and that's all it was. So, taxpayers, thank you. Um, but if you're someone who feels overburdened by guilt and you trust in Jesus, his death says you can go free. You are not guilty before God. Speak that truth into your own heart and then let it bubble up and bubble over and speak to others. The work of the gospel in God's people's lives should be attractive. And if you're somebody who rarely feels guilty and trust in Jesus, Make sure that you know that it's only through Jesus that you can be saved. You don't bring anything to the party. You don't deserve it. God freely offers forgiveness to all. So keep speaking the death of Jesus as your forgiveness into your own life so that you may not grow proud or numb to the gospel, but let it encourage you and overflow as joy to others. And if you're neither of those and you don't know Jesus, Consider what I've said. If it doesn't make any sense, come and ask me or somebody else. And if you want to know Jesus, grab somebody that you've come with and ask them to, to help you with that. So we're going to close there. I'll pray. The band will come back up and we're going to sing the song that we were singing as we came in at the beginning, a song that comes out of this passage. Um, 
So let's pray, and then we'll sing that song together. Father, we thank you for the goodness of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the one who is the hope for all the world. He's the one that makes it possible for us to know and love you. And Father, please impress that into our hearts to the point where we would bubble over with excitement and joy for Jesus. Father, thank you for all that he has done. Thank you for this psalm. And please take these words and plant them into our hearts so that we may live differently for you. Amen.